Hello, and welcome to Kazigram Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to having honest conversations on the issues most important to life and to our culture. You can find us online at kazingram.com. That's K-A-Z-I-N-G-R-A-M.com. We hope you enjoy this episode. Be sure to like and subscribe. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Amos Dober with the introduction. Our guest today is Jennifer Hartweed. Jennifer is professor of philosophy at the University of New Brunswick and the president of the Canadian Society of Christian Philosophers. In this episode, we discussed the philosophy and the history of science, the importance of empathy, what is the scientific method, what is the human person, theology, and the contemporary university. It was a fantastic conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode. Please welcome Jennifer Hartweed. Jen Nifera, thank you so much for joining us. I was going to say, Jen. <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Yeah. Amos and I have uh, read your work during our graduate studies, and we were big fans of your work. And so we're, we're very excited to have you on and talk to you and ask you a bunch of questions that, you know, that we, Amos and I have discussed, but Great. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's so uh, it's so gratifying to hear that someone reads these articles because sometimes you know you put them out there and you never know where they go. So that's great. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Is it in terms of like writing academic articles? Just out of curiosity, what's the process like? Does it take a year? Does it take four months? Does it take six months? It probably depends what you're working on. For me, because I work primarily in the history of philosophy, there's a lot of research that you have to do on the front end. And then once you submit to a journal, each, each journal or you know, edited volume has their own timeline in terms of having the work refereed and peer reviewed and then going through an editorial process. So for example, there's a paper that I submitted to an edited volume coming out of Europe in 2018, and it still hasn't appeared yet. Now it's in process, wow. and it's a very large volume. So there's a reason why it takes that kind of time, but it hasn't shown up yet. But so, you know, sometimes these, uh, these articles, they're coming out, and they're coming out, and they're coming out for quite some time until, you know, they appear in print. So does it, does, uh, when you're doing research, does it, um, require at least, like how long would you say like the how, how much hour how many months do you think it takes if you were to give an estimate of your research it, it yeah it depends um everyone works a little differently but what i like to do is i like to put together an article and i like to have uh, feedback from uh, people i trust first and then i like to present it at a conference I like to get that kind of feedback from sometimes a wider audience. Now, usually I'm going to medieval conferences, but sometimes they're a little bit more general. And so you get a, a kind of a wider uh, field of expertise in the audience. And I like, to, I like to get feedback on it first. And then I put it into, you know, uh, the next couple of drafts before I would turn it out to a journal or to an edited volume. So, and, and that process can take, you know, at least a year. Uh, because oh. from from writing to to conference, you know, you prepare for your conference, and then you see how your paper is received, and you get feedback on it. But it, uh, especially working in philosophy, it really is a uh, discourse or exchange based discipline. You really mm. want to put your ideas out there, and you want them interrogated, and you want feedback because you want to put out the best possible. Uh, version of your ideas, and so you know, peer review and feedback at conferences really are essential. 
what would you what would you say how would you define philosophy just for someone who doesn't know anything how would you define philosophy <laughs> yeah uh i tend to think of philosophy in very general terms the way socrates thought of it the pursuit of wisdom and so it's the idea in at least in the history of philosophy that you are looking at a, a series of voices that have contributions on questions of ultimate concern for human beings. So, you know, what it is to be human. How, mm -hmm. how should human beings live? What is the best kind of society? How should we share the planets with other living things, including plants, animals, etc., cetera, uh, including the environment, those kinds of questions. So philosophy can sort of go in a lot of different directions, but in the beginning, I think it starts with a quest for wisdom, a quest for understanding, uh, and and uh, actually the formulation of certain kinds of questions. I think that's what started Socrates, and I think in my own experience, that's what prompted me as well, the search do, for answers to good questions. Do you think that if more people studied philosophy, uh, Amos, did you have a question? No, go ahead. Uh, do you, if more people studied philosophy in our current age, do you think there would be more understanding and less division? I mean, I'm thinking, because right now we're kind of living in strange times with, you know, idiot like people are divided into such strong ideological camps. And I've wondered if, if it's just, if there's something intrinsic about human nature such that we always identify with a particular group or a particular tribe and then stay in that tribe and then, you know, just shout at the other tribes and say, hey, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Well, I, I think there's sort of a yes and a no to that. I think there's a yes in that people feel more comfortable with others that maybe think like them. But it, that might be the beginning, but that's mm. not the end. So that's one way of thinking about it. The other way of thinking about it is in addition to discourse and dialogue, there's also empathy. And you don't necessarily need a training in philosophy to develop empathy because empathy is something that we can work on with children. It's something that we can work on in our communities in terms mm. of showing kindness and compassion for others. And, uh, you know, you don't necessarily need a philosophical background in order to develop that. But you certainly, if you want, I think if you want to be a good person, it's not just about knowledge and information. It's also about connection. It's also mm. about empathy. So you have to have both. And that's really what integrates a human being because you, you don't want to just have the intellectual component without the heart or the spirit or the soul mm. as well. So you want, you want both. So this is why, you know, if you go on social media sometimes, some of the most powerful images that you see are images of children. So I can think of some examples we've had recently of, uh, say, a Caucasian American and an African American child hugging in a park. Yeah. And yeah. it looks like it's just so basic and so human and so wonderful. And then you look at footage of adults and you think, how do you go from that to that, right? That's a good philosophical question. How do you go from that to that? But that notion of empathy and how it is something that we can recognize and how it's something that seems to be so basic. I think there's something there that we can build on. So even though there is a tendency for people to want to stay in their little silos because it's comfortable and only talk to people who agree to them, if they can make that move to engage in discourse with someone else, there is this possibility of also empathy coming along with it and for a, a constructive conversation to happen. Mm. Is, is there a difference between empathy and sympathy or are they the same thing? Uh, I, I think probably there's a difference. Empathy, I think, tends to be putting yourself in someone else's position. That's how I understand it anyway. Um, trying to see something from someone else's point of view. So hmm. 
in, you know, in philosophy, sometimes there's a fancy way of saying that, seeing the face of the other, sometimes mm. we like to say. Sympathy, however, I think is just, oh, this terrible thing just happened to this person and I feel bad about that. Mm. But empathy is really trying to imagine what it's like from the other person's perspective. Mm. And, and that takes a little bit more of a move than just feeling distressed, say, at someone's misfortune or pain. It's, it's trying to inhabit that role themselves and saying, what if it were me? who couldn't breathe? What if it were me, mm. you know, who was experiencing violence? Right. How would I feel? Yeah. So inhabiting another person's perspective takes it one more step, I think. Yeah. I think more is, people, yeah, go for it, Amos. Yeah. Is, is empathy something that's unique to human beings? That's a good question. I mean, we don't know a lot about what the internal life of animals uh, is we don't know what it's like to be mm. an animal. So that, you know, there's a famous pa uh, paper, what it's like to be a bat. And yeah. in, in this particular philosophical paper, it's a, it's a meditation on philosophy of mind and perspective. And it's recognized that we are as humans bound into a human perspective and we can imagine what it would be like for us as a human being to become a bat, but we don't know what it's like for a bat to be a bat. So for a for us to imagine what it's like for an animal to have em empathy, I'm not really sure where to go with that. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know how we could know that, but um, if we can start with human empathy and we can think about uh, human empathy as even transcending human beings and moving on to other kinds of living things, and I, I don't see why we couldn't try to inhabit the perspective of a dog. I just think we're just probably not going to get very far because we're still going to be our, our own little mind mm. imagining what it's like to inhabit a dog's spot body, right? So it's going to be inherently dualist, and I'm just not sure where to go with that, but a good question yeah do you think we, we we can extend empathy to animals so i'm like i'm thinking of um let's say having owning pets pets are very very common in our age uh, in our culture i should say specifically and more specifically in north america pets tend to be household pets as opposed to mm -hmm. you know in india where i grew up pets are outdoor you know they never come yeah, inside outdoor animals sure yeah. or if you grew up in an agricultural community you, there's a difference between a household pet and a farm animal yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so if we extend empathy can you can we go too far in extending empathy to non-human animals where we think where we place anthropomorphic things onto these animals and think oh you know this animal is just like me except it's a dog <laughs> Right. Well, this is, this is, that's an the point of anthropomorphism. That's really interesting because uh, back in the day when I first was at university, I was studying biology. And this was one of the things that we were cautioned against in animal behavior classes and writing mm. up our labs. They don't want you to go anthropomorphic. They don't want you to sort of import human ideas and human feelings on onto an animal or a subject. Um, so, I mean, I understand that. Uh, you know, animal dynamics, animal behavior is very different from human behaviors. But I don't see why you couldn't have some sort of, uh, maybe it's not empathy, maybe this is the point at which we move to sympathy. Hmm. So we don't know what it's like to be a dog, or we don't know what it's like to be a bat, but we understand what it's like to feel pain. And we understand what it's like to be with someone that we love, <laughs> you know? And so maybe we can imagine in that sense, or we can have respect in that sense for what a pet feels like being with his owner, or what a pet feels like, uh, you know, if she were in an accident and were hit by a car. So maybe it's, it moves to sympathy at that point. Mm. 
But sympathy for animals, I think, is really important because, uh, again, it's one of those things in the human experience we try to teach to children, you know, don't pull the cat's tail. Why? Because it hurts, you know. Uh, don't bother the dog when she's eating. Why? Because she feels like you're going to take her food from her, you know, things like that. And so it's a kind of seeing the other, sort of, not from the other's perspective, but maybe showing sympathy or compassion in that respect. Does does um uh, something i'm curious about is so within philosophy of mind it's i i, I, I perhaps the prevailing view is that consciousness is very subjective to the agent experiencing consciousness so when we uh, when we think of empathy is it possible to be truly empathetic towards another human being if our consciousness is subjective to our own and we are the ones experiencing our own subjective movie if if i could put it that way can we truly extend right. empathy? Mm -hmm. there, well, there, there's sort of one way, there's more than one way to go at answering that question. But one, one thing to think about is uh, what, what is it that is common in agents who are conscious? What is it that's shared? So even if what it is like to be you is the kind of thing that I can't know because I'm not you, um, what do we share as, as conscious agents? What do we share as human beings? And again, I think. Um, I think we get closer to the notion of empathy if we think about what it's like to adopt the other person's perspective, what it would be like to be you. And it's not exactly the thing that you know in the same way perhaps that you know that two plus two equals four, mm. but it is something perhaps you could learn. Maybe it's something you can approximate. And you know where we see this? We see this in creative works because we see this in drama and theater. We see this in authors who write. Maybe we even see it in music and dance, right? When, when as, a, as a subject, the music moves you, or as a dancer, you inhabit a role. I mean, maybe there's a way in which some of these creative works show us empathy in action, mm -hmm. and they show us a way that it could be done. Not the same thing as being the other person, but trying, or at least even from a minimal perspective, to imagine what it would be like to be the other person. Mm. And that's a start, mm. isn't it? So I think sometimes we think that a lot of these questions or a lot of these answers are all or nothing. And I'm, I'm not sure that they are. Um, I personally think that there's, you know, there are certain things that the human mind has trouble dealing with. Colin McGinn, for example, has got this argument that he thinks that human beings can't solve the mind-body problem. He just thinks it's one of those things that's epistemically closed for human beings. Hmm. Maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. But, uh, and you could read, you know, you read the paper and judge for yourself. But uh, maybe it's the case that there are some things that are epistemically closed for human beings. But just because something's epistemically closed doesn't mean that you can't have some kind of information about it. It doesn't mean you can't have some kind of knowledge. Maybe you can't know the whole, but maybe you could know the part. Or maybe you could have opinions about the part or something like that. So, you know, to put it sort of as all or nothing, you know, maybe there are cases where if you frame it like that, you, you know, it's just the, the answer's not going to appear. But if you think about partial knowledge or a way of approximating something, you might be able to make progress on the problem. So I tend to like to take that position because that was Socrates' position. You know, Socrates said to uh, Mino, if you give up on knowledge, if you say knowledge, the search for knowledge is futile because we won't recognize knowledge when it appears for us because mm -hmm. we won't know what we're looking for, uh, you're going to spend your life sitting on the couch. <laughs> you're not going to get out there. You're not going to do anything. It's going to be 
not meaningful in terms of experience, but it's also probably going to be frustrating. So maybe it's better to take that risk, that epistemic risk, mm. and say, I can't know everything, but maybe I can know something. Maybe I can learn something new and take that step and try to learn something new. So mm. maybe empathy works like that. Yeah. With that, though, how would you sort of balance um, like epistemic humility, knowing that you can't know everything with, uh, with skepticism, um, which seems to right. be well, false epistemic humility? Sure. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, the uh, skepticism comes up in the history of philosophy a couple of different times. And, uh, you know, you've got a radical position uh, that's adopted by some of the solipsists, where uh, the gentleman, his name escapes me, but back in ancient times, he used to wander around and he wasn't really sure if, if he was, if you were there. So he might wag his finger in your direction, but he was a radical skeptic, so he couldn't greet you. Uh, you kind of <laughs> wonder what quality of life the solipsist has. I mean, he's going to end up under a bridge. He's going to be by himself. And of course, the Greeks uh, had this idea that if you don't live in community, you're going to have an impoverished life. You're not going to, Aristotle yeah. says, you're, you know, you need community in order to be happy, you need friends. You're not going to be happy. So, uh, you know, maybe from a performative standpoint, we can think, well, solipsism really isn't going to be conducive to a happy life. So let's leave that out there. Can we come a little bit further on the quest for knowledge? Maybe we could be skeptical about some things, but maybe it can be kind of a mitigated skepticism. So you have an understanding that you can't know everything. Uh, and, and maybe you want to set up your epistemology in such a way, maybe you're an empiricist or a rationalist or, or whichever path you choose there. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, you're recognizing that solipsism really isn't an option and it's, there's no way we know everything. So we end up somewhere in the middle and we do the best that we can with what we have and hopefully we learn. I, it, again, I think it's kind of a process, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's a process of investigation. Yeah. Mm. So would that sort of approach suggest that um, philosophy is a kind of dialectic that moves towards first principles that emerges out of a, a certain pattern of life rather than a more Cartesian conception of philosophy as a, a demonstration of what you can know from irrefutable first principles? Well, there are rationalists out there, and of course, they're going to tell you that, that you have to start from innate ideas. Yeah. I tend to be an Aristotelian. I was an Aristotelian before I even knew what it was, with a background <laughs> in natural science. So when I found Aristotle, I'm like, well, of course. <laughs> How yeah. could it be otherwise, Socrates? You know, of course, Aristotle is correct on this. So, so I'm an empiricist, and so coming from that perspective, I want to say that we sort of... Uh, there are certain kinds of first principles, Aristotle argues, that you have to start with. So, for example, what mm. about something like the law of non-contradiction, right? Or, or what about certain kinds of principles of, of, of category, you know, what the world is made of and things like that, cause and effect. Okay, well, we start with these, first, and then we can go to, then we can go from certain kinds of first principles, then we can move to demonstration. So I guess it ends up being something like a kind of a foundationalist position because the first principles function like a foundation. Mm, but right. you could argue that maybe it's a fallible foundationalism because perhaps it's the case that on your understanding of um, say science or something you discover that one of the first principles you were using is not actually a first principle it was mm -hmm. like a conditional and those conditions are no longer met so you have to reject it so there's a way to go back to the first principles but some of the first principles like the law of non-contradiction you're not going to want to get rid of that mm -hmm. so that's sort of where i lay out now obviously there's a continued debate between rationalism and empiricism and the rationalists are going to say no no we've got innate ideas I don't, I don't happen to agree with that, but I see where they're coming from, and I can see why somebody would adopt that position. Is, okay. is something like the law of non-contradiction, would you, you, you would say, is, is brute fact? Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I think you have to assume it in order to have discourse. Now, again, if I'm my little solipsist sitting under a bridge, I don't have to adopt the law of non-contradiction. I'm not engaged in any discourse with anybody. I probably have to adopt it mentally, though, because hmm. I understand that sitting under a bridge is different than sitting than not sitting under a bridge and in the middle of a typhoon or something, right? <laughs> See, this is the problem. You start running into these really delicious performative self-contradictions and try to be a solipsist. I, I, um, I teach a course, History of Philosophy Part 2, and, and we start with the Renaissance. We get to Descartes. We talk about Hume's criticism of Cartesian skepticism. And one of the things that comes up and that my students really like talking about is solipsism. And I tell them the story about the gentleman whose name uh, escapes me. And we imagine what it would be like to be a contemporary solipsist, you know. And it starts it sounds really good for the first five minutes because you you relieve yourself of all of these social conventions you don't have no responsibility but what are you going to eat you know i mean the difference if you're really skeptical then eating and not eating are probably the same how do you know that there's food there i mean why bother how are you going to pay for it anyway and then all of a sudden people start thinking well you know maybe having a kind of a mitigated skepticism is better so i think i'm going to adopt that position because I can't deal with being a solipsist. So we have this interesting thought experiment that sort of winds itself out. So on a, on a related uh, question is when it comes to, so if we're talking about like science and, uh, and, the, uh, and the law of non-contradiction is, and you being an Aristotelian and being an Aristotelian, Aristotelian before you found, about, found out about Aristotle, would you say science is as Bas von Frassen would describe it, or are we, is science more, uh, are we really discovering something when we're doing science or quantitative right. science? That's a really good question. One of the reasons why, well, I'm a fan of von Frassen for a number of reasons. I met him a number of years ago, and I, I just really like him personally. I think he's brilliant. But also, he's a Canadian. He's one of is our homegrown really? Canadian philosophers. Absolutely. Yeah. He's from Alberta and he was a professor, you know, went to the University of Alberta and then he uh, was a professor for many years at the University of Toronto, which is where he wrote the scientific image, which is where he developed his own personal view of philosophy of science, which is called constructive empiricism. And this was a whole new, it, it spawned a whole new school. So before he went to Princeton, he was at U of T. Hmm. So he's a Canadian and, uh, you know, we're pr proud of our uh, Canadian <laughs> philosophers, right? Um, so, but the, but the history of constructive empiricism is really interesting because if you talk to Von Frost and he will tell you that he is basically a post-Kantian when it comes to metaphysics. So uh, he doesn't like the medievals. He doesn't like uh, Aristotle really when it, when it comes to metaphysics. So he is in fact a constructivist. He's an anti-realist when it comes to metaphysics. And for many people, anti-realism and empiricism do not go together. It really puzzles them how you could be an anti-realist uh, uh, philosopher of science uh, when uh, you know, you've got these other cases of people like uh, maybe Aristotle and people in the Middle Ages, they, they just like sort of garden variety realist uh, empiricist. So he spawns this new movement. So he's anti-realist when it comes to metaphysics, but he's an empiricist when it comes to science. And the upshot of that is that he wants to demythologize or demetaphysicize. I don't even know. I have to invent a word. It's like German. You just mash the words together and see what happens. I'm gonna, he's going to demetaphysicize. Take the metaphysics out of science. That's the idea. So he wants to get rid of things like laws of nature. He wants to get rid of the theoretical constructs, things that we've inherited, say, from antiquity and the Middle Ages. And he wants to just focus on what is in principle observable for a human being. So it, there's a kind of an anthropocentric, perhaps, or at least a mind-centered understanding of science. 
I teach it and I enjoy teaching it, but he hasn't convinced me. I'm not ready to give up on my Aristotelian metaphysics, but I see his point and I grant his point that there are there is more metaphysics in natural science that is dreamt of in first year biology classes. Mm. <laughs> um, I think that this is really true. He, he's right about that. But it's a kind of an unconscious adoption of metaphysical concepts. So here's an example. People want to talk about laws of laws of thermodynamics and laws of nature. But the concept of the law is a metaphysical concept. It takes with it the notion of necessity, which is a modal operator, right? It takes with it the notion of the fact that you cannot have exceptions, all of these things. And so when someone like David Hume puts together his understanding of, uh, you know, constant conjunction and causality, at the same time, he still thinks that there are such things as laws of nature. And he doesn't seem to think that there's any contradiction between his critique of the cause and effect relationship and necessary connection and adopting laws of nature. But see, someone like von Frossen recognizes that there's a problem there. Uh, this whole notion of necessary connection, which von Frossen rejects, is basically equivalent to the adoption of something like a law of nature. Hmm. Because laws of nature carry with them this notion of necessity. So his, uh, von Frossen's strategy then is to get rid of the notion of these metaphysical ideas and, and come up with what you can observe. So you could come up with something like a probability or a statistical model uh, based on observation, and you can amend it when you get better observations, things like that. But you're not going to assume that your model holds with necessity. You're not going to say that it holds in, in all possible worlds or at all times or something like that. So you're going to be very conscious of the, um, the metaphysics that somehow sneak into science. But in my anecdotal experience, uh, people who work in science just seem to think that laws of nature are sort of part of the furniture of the universe, and they adopt it unquestioningly without thinking that they are therefore making a metaphysical commitment. Hmm. And I just think we just need to be honest about it. What are, we, what are we claiming when we're claiming a law of nature? What is it for something to be a law? Is it a true law, which means it holds with necessity and there's no exceptions? Or is it something more like a statistical generalization? And let's just, let's just um, spell out what those conditions are, if that's the case. Because you so that's sort of where I come at that. Yeah. You can't really do... So anytime, someone, anytime a scientist would interpret their data they would, and they conjecture something, it would be philosophical in, by definition. Well, I don't know if by definition, but it would be philosophical. Well, it, it, it can be. It can be. But it's, uh, part of what is going on, I think, is that... Uh, even your understanding of what reality is or what your framework is starts with something like a first principle or at least a condi conditional first principle. This is, this is my data set. This is my theory. And if you, you know, again, if you go back in the history of philosophy of science, one of the uh, observations that I thought was really powerful was the notion that data is theory laden. So if you watch a, a, a criminal procedural show on TV, watch something like CSI, the way the forensic scientists talk, uh, for example, there was one, it was CSI uh, Las Vegas, I think, or the original one. And the coroner or the forensic scientists were always talking as if the body was talking to them. You know, this poor individual has been uh, in an accident. We don't know what happened. And so I'm going to examine the body and she's going to tell me what happened to her. And so the way that language works, the, it leads you to believe that uh, the data is a given. Mm -hmm. And you just need to write it down. There's no interpretation. There's no theoretical framework in which uh, the data is being used. 
data is theory neutral, but that's not right. Because even in order to understand what your data set is, you have to work from certain kinds of principles. And forensic science, like other kinds of sciences, starts with certain kinds of principles, like cause and effect, for example. You know, I mean, there are all kinds of explanations somebody could give for the demise of an individual. You know, for example, this person was killed by aliens who sucked their soul out of their nose. I mean, you could come up with really <laughs> wild explanations, right? But that's not what we're talking about. I mean, we're tabling that, right? I mean, we're just looking at this kind of data. And so if someone comes in and says, well, there was an alien abduction outside of Vegas, and that's what happened to my friend. And, mm. you know, you're going to... Um, you're going to table that information. You're going to exclude it, right? Because you've got a theoretical framework that's at work here. That looks like it's paranormal. That's not what we deal in, at least not on this TV show. Uh, go find the X-Files. They'll deal with your stuff. And, right? and so data is theory-laden. You, you come to the table not as a neutral mm -hmm. observer, not without uh, preconditioned ideas. No, you have all of that. And the framework helps you understand what data is. And what is extraneous, like mm. the narrative about the alien, right? You exclude that. That's not data. But in order to understand what data is, you have to have a framework in order to interpret it. But again, if you watch these TV shows and you hear the, the language, you think, oh, well, you know, data, you just pick it out of the air like, uh, like apples on a tree, you know? But that's not quite right. In order to know what to pay attention to and what to exclude, you have to have a theoretical framework. This would, this would seem to cast doubt on the idea that science is always... Um, is what would it be? Valueless judgments that science is making valueless judgments. It doesn't. It do well, and part of the reason why is because scientists themselves have values. Hmm. Now, so there's an innovation in the philosophy of science when you have Thomas Kuhn come along, and he was at Harvard, and he paid attention to the history of science. He was interested in the history of astronomy, and so when he wrote his groundbreaking work, the uh, structure of scientific revolutions, he started paying attention to some of the sociological or community things that were happening in science. For example, how a particular scientific specialization works like a guild. They have a, they have similar program. They have a particular training. They read from the same textbooks. They go to the same conferences. They belong to the same professional association. They, they write uh, grant applications to one grant giving uh, um, uh, fund or something like that. Uh, peer review is controlled by the group or the guild, these kinds of things. And so um, he was much more sensitive to the ways in which the uh, scientific community operated as a whole and how their commitment to their scientific program functioned in terms of framing their research projects, how they deal with anomalies, how you deal with something that can't be explained, those kinds of things. And once he does that, all of a sudden, there is now a shift in focus, in, or at least a possibility of a shift in focus in the philosophy of science to elements that go sort of beyond the natural world hmm. to elements involving the practice of science, the sociology of it, maybe even the gender of it. So there's a new, there was a new uh, strand within this tradition of feminist epistemology of science, what it is to be a woman practicing science, etc. So it opened up the possibility of taking a look at, you might say, things that you weren't studying in a lab, but were present in the lab, and that played some sort of role in scientific uh, investigations. And so with that, then, there's an understanding, again, that the the observer is not neutral. 
the observer brings his or her background to the table. There's a, there's a huge tradition here in terms of the scientific community, how, chem, you know, how chemistry or physics is practiced, for example, you know, those kinds of things. Is, is it, does, does, is that is that a problem if we're trying to if we're if someone's doing science and they're in you know they they believe that they are uh, discovering reality, then if 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 their perspective is value laden or theory laden is are they no longer are we are we no like, are we no longer discovering reality in and of itself are we just discovering things that are things that we pre- presuppose in reality. Well, I go back to Van Frossen, because if you're an anti-realist, then you reject the notion of discovery, because you're a constructivist. And so part of what you're doing is you're imposing, or you're making sense of nature, or you're uh, saving the phenomena, or something like that. So if you adopt that perspective, then it's pretty clear it's not really straightforward discovery. Um, If that's not your perspective, if you're a realist when it comes to metaphysics, there at least is the possibility of discovery there. But there are a lot of influences that you might, as a scientist, with no philosophical background, you might not be conscious of. So, um, you know, one thing to think about is how we deal with an anomaly. So um, Kuhn spends a lot of time talking about anomaly. Anomaly, an unexpected result. Uh, So, uh, you know, here's a simple one. Uh, Imagine that you are an expert on swans. You're an expert on swans in North America. And every single swan that you encounter happens to have white feathers. And so you write up a paper saying all all swans have white feathers. And you're pretty excited about your research project. You've got all of this positive data. You've sent out grad students all over Canada. Every single swan they encounter has white feathers. And then all of a sudden you go to a conference and you meet someone from Australia. And he writes a paper saying all swans have black feathers. wait a second, that's not a swan or, you know, it's a mutant, you know, an unexpected result. Now I'm painting it in, you know, no one's going to do this and I'm painting this in broad brushstrokes. But the question is, what do you do with the unexpected result? You know, do you, do you dismiss it? Do you say it's a one-off? This is, this is a radioactive swan and that's why the feathers changed. You know, this isn't really a swan. This is some other kind of bird. How do you deal with the unexpected result? And what Kuhn says is in the beginning, Scientists don't see anomalies as anomalies. What do they see them as? They, don't, they either don't see them at all. It doesn't show up in their data set. It do, they don't pay attention to it or they don't notice it. Or they notice it, but they can explain it away. Contaminated sample, human error. You know, my grad student went out and got drunk, and so he's not doing, he's not doing data collection, so I don't have a grad student anymore because now he's gone. You know, these kinds of things. And, but then if enough people start seeing anomalies, seeing anomalies, yeah. then all of a sudden the community has to respond to them. Mm. But there is a degree, and he argues a high degree of resistance to anomalies because people are invested in their research project. And the way the research project is structured, again, because data is theory-laden, what counts as data is really circumscribed. You know what to expect. You know what you're going to get or a range perhaps of results. So if you get something that's really out there, your first thing, you know, maybe my sensor's faulty. Maybe I've got faulty equipment. Maybe the computer malfunctioned. Maybe my grad student isn't very good. Blame it on the grad students, right? <laughs> or these, 
And then, but then if enough people start seeing it, then all of a sudden there's the possibility that we have to make a change. So what Kuhn does is he links anomalies to scientific revolutions, but he points out that it takes a long time for an anomaly to uh, cause a scientific revolution because people are invested in their research projects and they're not ready to make a change. They are actually not aiming at novelty. They're aiming at what is expected, according to Kuhn. And so that's why an anomaly is so perplexing. So from Kuhn's analysis, science, the progress of science is in this neat linear movement. No. In fact, he has a radical position where he argues that science is not an accretion. What does that mean? He thinks science is, he doesn't think that new movements build on old ones. Hmm. Now, that might, you might be like, why would anybody think that? Of course it's linear and it's progressive and we're getting better. Yeah. Look at medical technology. What, I mean, what, why would you say that? Well, one of his stock examples is to look at uh, the Copernican Revolution. So just briefly, uh, before the Copernican Revolution, the standard uh, model of the universe placed the earth at the center and at rest and everything else, including the sun, revolved around it. This was Aristotle's view. This was Ptolemy's view at the time of Galileo. This was the view adopted by the church, etc. And But there's a bunch of astronomers in Europe at that point that are saying to each other, if the Earth is at rest at the center of the universe, then there's problems in planetary and um, starry motion because uh, we have to make all of these ad hoc modifications of our star maps and our planetary maps at certain times of the years because the planets and the stars are not acting as if they are revolving around the Earth. So what gives? And eventually what happened was through, again, all of these anomalies and, and recognizing that the old theory was having to be changed and modified all the time in order to fix it and make it match with celestial observations. Uh, the model changed to putting the sun at rest in the center of the universe and everything revolving around the sun and for a recognition that the earth itself is moving, spinning on its axis every 24 hours. Okay. So Somebody might think, look, this is progress. This is a development. See what's happened. They've moved the Earth from the center of the universe out to one of the orbits around the sun, like so many other planets. This is a positive move. This is progress. Copernicanism builds on the old Ptolemaic system. Kuhn denies that. And then the question is, why? Why would you deny that? It seems like it's true. Well, what he does is he looks at the way the term Earth and what it picks out, in other words, the referent of the term in a geocentric model versus a heliocentric model. And it means two different things because in a geocentric model, Earth is at rest in the center of the universe. That's what picks out, that's what Earth picks out, the phenomena that Earth picks out. But in a heliocentric model, Earth is in motion around the sun. In other words, they're not talking about the same Earth. Mm. They're not talking about the same model. Earth in English, doesn't have the same referent in these two different systems. And that's one of the reasons why he rejects the notion that Copernicanism builds on uh, the old Aristotelian or Ptolemaic system. He thinks that these, um, when you have the scientific revolution, the language is different. Every time. Yes. Now that is his view. Now, there are a lot of people that want to say, well, that might work for the, that one example, but it's not going to work in others. And they want to even make the claim that an Einsteinian system uh, builds on Newton, uh, you know, and so uh, I don't know, I don't necessarily want to get 
myself get too hung up on that. If people think that they, there's an accretion, that it's progressive, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem with that myself. But he, he picked out, and you know, the detractors are going to say that Kuhn cherry picked historical examples in that book um, that would lead, lead you to believe the notion that science is not an accretion, that old theories do not build on, on new ones. But it, it, you got an uphill battle with that argument, I think, because mm. common sense basically tells us that there is there are certain pieces that we maintain even throughout some of these revolutions. The whole system doesn't, you know, our whole system of outlook doesn't necessarily change every time there's a scientific revolution mm. in all fields. So, you know, again, it's one of those things where this is probably one of the most powerful books in the history of, of philosophy of science that came out in the 20th century, and it's definitely worth the read, and it's very readable. You don't have to have a big philosophical background or a big background in science in order to get something out of it. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's definitely worth a read. What would you say in terms of the usage of um, the phrase, the scientific method? You know, it's, it's, you frequently hear that from, you know, researchers have found that using the scientific method, X, Y, Z, and it seems to be a very common term to dismiss non-scientific sure. methods sure but one thing you can think about is uh which science are they talking about because mm. it seems to me that there are multiple scientific methods depending upon your field of research and what area that you're working in right mm. and you know you might want to say there's more than one kind of science you could think about forestry as a science or engineering as a science and maybe uh, psychology is a kind of a science so i mean you know i'd, I'd kind of want to know a little bit more about about the what they mean when they think of scientific method. Presumably, they're probably thinking of something maybe in physics, maybe they're thinking of something in chemistry. And they're probably have in mind something like what we learned in high school science, where uh, you have an experiment, you have an anticipated result, uh, you really hope that you get the anticipated result because you wanna write up your lab and get an A. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. uh, this is what you want. You want the anticipated, and if you don't get the anticipated result, then maybe you want to throw your lab partner overboard and you want to say contaminated sample. Lab partner didn't add the whatever it was at the right moment, and so that's why our experiment failed, something like that. But one way of thinking about the scientific method, and I do this in my classes, is to think about um, the format. So you have a hypothesis, and then you have an experiment. And so you work, you think of it like a conditional. If, uh, if my hypothesis is correct, then my experiment will work. So if A, then B. And then you think, well, my experiment worked, so B. Therefore, my hypothesis is correct. Now, I'm not um, monkeying about with the scientific method. I'm just telling you what my chemistry teacher told me. This is the way we write up our results. This is our hypothesis that we're trying to test. This is the experiment we're using to test it. And we're gonna use the experiment to verify the hypothesis. Fair enough, no problem. We all get taught this, this is the way it is, and you write up your lab results. But from a philosophical standpoint, if you've studied critical thinking and you look at that format, if A then B, B therefore A, there's a problem with it, right? What's the problem? It's a fallacy. It's a fallacy, right. It's affirming the consequent. Mm -hmm. So you could put it another way. You could say, if it's raining, then the mail will be late. The mail was late, therefore it's raining. But the mail could be late because my neighbor has a Rottweiler and the Rottweiler <laughs> took down the postman before he got to my house, right? Okay. The mail could be late because there's a strike or there's a pandemic, 
you know, save us all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So there's multiple reasons. So, you know, unless there really is only one option, if A, then B, then you can't use that format. You can't as a confirmation. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. someone like, um, Popper, Karl Popper, uses this as a way of reducing verificationism to absurdity. Mm-hmm. And he, he argues in his, his work, Conjectures and Reputations, another book in the history of philosophy of science worth reading, yeah. um, he argues that verificationism is problematic because it's built on a fallacy. Mm-hmm. And it's the fallacy I've just explained. And again, there's no sleight of hand here. All I'm doing is I'm just reciting a, a standard um, fallacy that you would learn in um, critical thinking um, and the idea it's called affirming the consequent. Now it is possible that your hypothesis is correct, but you can't know that on the basis of this reasoning process. So I have, you know, I want to say that, um, you would have to do something else. And so what Popper does is he suggests that what we should do is we should move towards falsificationism. So one of the problems I have from a philosophical standpoint with the scientific method is that it, it looks to me in many cases, as if it's built on verificationism. And in addition to the problem of reasoning in verificationism that I've just identified, there's also, you might say, a a psychological problem with verificationism. This is something that Popper also talks about. Human beings tend to look for verification. Sometimes we say this, human beings look for affirmation. They look Mm -hmm. for positive reinforcing cues. uh, just as a general tendency. I mean, not, I guess not everybody does this, but in, human beings tend to do this. So again, getting back to your first question, human beings tend to like to stay with people that, that think like they do or that reinforce their beliefs, which is why, unfortunately, you know, if you have somebody who's got very angry and hateful beliefs, they don't want to just go be hateful by themselves. They want to find other people to be hateful with. And that's, you know, the, they're going to find a group on internet that agrees with them and they're all going to be, you know, typing angry and hate, you know, on the internet. Keyboard so this warriors. notion of what? The keyboard Sorry? warriors. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> in my day we called them trolls, but yeah, I mean, I get the, I get your, which parenthetically, um, if you haven't read Aristotle on trolls, which was written by Rachel Barney, who's a professor at the University of Toronto. You need to yeah. find it okay. because it, have you seen it? It's a uh, public domain. And what she did is she wrote a faux Aristotelian treatise against trolls. It's hysterical. <laughs> it's free. She's amazing. And again, proud of our Canadian philosophers. She's from Toronto. Um, I, you need to read it if you want uh, an interesting philosophical treatment of trolls. But anyway, all of this is to say verificationism. One of my concerns is this, the psychological tendency to try to find um, positive affirmation or verification uh, that reinforces your own view mm-hmm. and this problem with the logical fallacy. So if someone wants to say that there's a scientific method, my first question is, what is it? Mm. Because my suspicion is it's not going to be the same across disciplines. Mm. Um, and if there is a scientific method, let's be clear on whether it involves a fallacy or not. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I say, I like, I get into these conversations with some of my students who are in the natural scientists. They're like, nobody in my faculty talks about this. <laughs> well, but that's because philosophers feel like they can just move into other disciplines and talk about their stuff without asking permission. They're, you know, philosophers tend not to ask for permission before they sort of make themselves yeah. at home in someone else's field. Is it, Whereas, you know, people in other disciplines tend not to do that. Is, you know, is the terms, um, the, the the term that we 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 call science, I mean the thing, the the field that we call science, prior to uh, was it is it is it as late as the 18th century was known as natural philosophy? 
Yeah, I think that was that was part of the trend. Yeah, the idea that it was natural philosophy. Um, now, there's there's a reason for that because someone like Aristotle, for example, did not feel as if he needed to divide himself into disciplines. And so he was perfectly comfortable working on the parts of animals and biology and causality and metaphysics and the first cause. He worked on everything. He was interested in everything. Um, There's something kind of wonderful about that, about how in antiquity in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance, you know, the the concept of the Renaissance man or the Renaissance Mm. person being involved in a lot of different fields and having a lot of different interests instead of being super and hyper specialized there's something kind of wonderful about that but unfortunately we've we've kind of gotten away from that haven't we uh you know you you study your particular subject and you develop your specialization and then i perhaps there's an expectation that you're supposed to just sort of stick to that now philosophy because they're interested in you know wisdom and reasoning and also raising skeptical questions about other people's disciplines and the foundational assumptions that they're building on there they tend to want to sort of dabble in other kinds of things but um you know, you don't see too many people that, that do everything in the way that someone like Aristotle did. But yeah, this notion of natural philosophy, I think that that's what it's coming from. It's this notion that things dealing with nature were actually part of philosophy. Hmm. Because in the medieval period, a lot of the, a lot, some, of, some of the greatest philosophers were polymath. With, I'm thinking like um, Absolutely. Avicenna. Yes. Um, is, it, is, is it something Absolutely. specific about the way they were trained or is it just that they were these unique extremely intelligent people that came out during the medieval period well it's probably a little bit of both i mean if you're dealing with someone like avicenna and uh you know albert albertus magnus albert the Mm. great that was aquinas's teacher and albert was really interested in biology and botany for you know aquinas apparent i don't think he was really honestly all that interested in that kind of stuff but albert certainly (laughs) was so i mean part of it is these these figures you know what what fascinates them? What are they interested in? But also, I think part of it was their education and the fact that if you, if you could read and you had time to study, what would stop you from reading everything you came upon? And what would stop you from investigating all of these different concerns? And um, that kind, well, first of all, the leisure to be able to study and then the curiosity about the way the world was, uh, you know, those two things come together. And then you've got these interesting people who are working in all different kinds of fields. So yeah, because the the the, the, the medievalist philosophers were theists, but they were also what we would consider scientists. You know, there's 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 no real. They didn't think there was any sort of uh, incompatibility between their religious faith and their 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 work as scientists. Or oh, I mean, scientists. That's true. That's true. Now um, Aquinas. For example, he's got a commentary on Aristotle's physics, which itself is really interesting. I mean, how many theologians write commentaries on physics, right? Mm-hmm. Aquinas did. Yeah. Why not? You know. <laughs> so um, yeah, you have these you have these examples of of a kind of um, extensive curiosity and a willingness to study all of these different things, and a kind of optimism about where philosophy could take them. You know that philosophy is like a kind of a discipline, and if you're trained in philosophy, it can take you all different kinds of places. Mm. So, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I th- I think within the Aristotelian corpus itself, there is a sense that the sciences are unified. Like especially if you read something like the Posterior Analytics, um, you know there, se- there seems to be a hierarchy of sciences. They all share a common set of core principles. But um, right. Yeah. Yes. No, I think that's right. Higher sciences. Some sciences yes. derive their and, principles and, from others. 
from other sciences. And then when you move into the Middle Ages, uh, you know, theology is considered to be a science, mm-hmm. and it's the queen of the sciences. So philosophy is sort of downgraded at that point, or considered to be helpful in the pursuit of something like theology. But yeah, theology is considered to be a science. Now, one reason might be that scientia or scientia in Latin is the word for knowledge, but that's the word, that's uh, the Latin word from which we get the English science. So, uh, you know, this notion of a field of inquiry that has as its object knowledge, uh, you know, that's what, that's how they define theology and, and these other kinds of sciences. But theology was at the top in the medieval universities in a way in which it's no longer, because nowadays, if you ask students, for example, what, what's, what are the hard sciences or, or, you know, what is, what is, what is the queen of the sciences or the top discipline? And they're probably going to say, astrophysics and engineering or something like that, you know, aerospace engineering and, and uh, you know, particle physics or something like that. They're not going to say theology probably. And uh, they're probably not going to say the, uh, philosophy either. So yeah. uh, we've had sort of a switch in terms of a hierarchy, haven't we? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a drastic switch because a lot of the, um, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of the big universities, at least in Canada were, um, I'm thinking like UFT was started by the Anglican priest. And then you have, um, St. Mary's in Halifax, you know, it was a Catholic one, but then all of them have been relegated. McMaster, well, McMaster was, was established by the Baptists. Sure. Right. I mean, and uh, bishops, I think again, was an Anglican school and there's all kinds of, you know, St. Francis Xavier was Catholic. I mean, uh, you've got all of uh, McGill, I think was Presbyterian. I mean, you've got all of these different examples you write from coast to coast. And then you've also got the tradition of the affiliated colleges uh, so having um, theological schools or seminaries or, uh, you know, uh, colleges affiliated with a particular church as part of a public mm-hmm. university uh, in the Canadian system. So, yeah, that's right. I mean, there was a, um, a denominational affiliation or flavor there in right. many of the universities, at least in the early days. Yeah. So in terms of like, um, uh, in terms of us learn. Not us. I'm not a so students who are in universities right now. Do you think that there is a sense in which they should all be taught philosophy? They should all be taught philosophy as as something fundamental before they proceed into doing you know going into their very specific, very niche fields. As a philosopher, do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, that that's a good question. So, uh, in Canada, we tend not to have what they call the common core or the common first year, which is what they have. Uh, in the American system, and particularly in the Catholic universities and, and especially the Jesuit schools, students have to take philosophy and theology usually in their first and second year as mm-hmm. core courses. And it doesn't matter what field they're in. So even if they're in the natural sciences, they're going to take those courses. Um, I think there's a lot of benefit to that, but the downside is in our particular community, in our particular experience, that just wasn't the way Canadians did things. And um, I do sometimes wonder. If you don't, uh, if you sometimes have the undesirable effect of killing someone's curiosity by making a course required, mm. you know, sometimes I wonder if you feed the curiosity, if you feed the liberty. So I kind of wonder if you have these really fun philosophy courses out there and you welcome the students, but you don't make it required, whether that isn't something that would work a little better. So uh, I teach at the University of New Brunswick. I teach, we are an undergraduate department and philosophy is not a mandatory course, so no one has to take it. Um, although you could take it you know, as an elective and fulfill requirements, but it's not required that you do philosophy. 
Um, and a number of years ago, I was trying to figure out how can we reach the student body better? How can we let them know what we're doing? How can we develop a curiosity and philosophy amongst students and on the campus? And I'm trying to come up with creative ideas. And so what I decided to do, at least as an experiment, was to teach intro to philosophy, but to call it something else. So uh. I developed this course called Monsters in Philosophy, which is basically introduction to philosophy, but with a better marketing program. <laughs> and so <laughs> what I did was I said, okay, we're gonna, it's going to be intro. We're going to do an intro to philosophy, and we're going to do a mixture of historical and contemporary uh, you know, papers and, and readings. But we're also going to do popular fiction. And because it's my course, I'm going to pick what I like. So we're going to do Harry Potter and the Magician's Nephew and the Hobbit. And we're going to read, um, do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, which was the mm. original science fiction book that Blade Runner was based on. Okay. We're going to read Frankenstein, Dracula, you know, this kind of stuff, right? Uh, World War Z, which is the zombies book. I mean, I get really excited talking about it because I love teaching and it's so much fun. And so basically what I did was I picked works in popular fiction centered around this narrative of monsters. And then I just chose them based upon particular philosophical problems or ideas. And then I just put it out there. And as soon as I put it out there, honestly, if I had a TA, I could take hundreds of students, but but mm. without, without teaching support, I just can't do it. But uh, as so, you know, we always have a waiting list because students want this course. So there's a way in which you can put the stuff out there and hopefully the students will come and take the course and be interested and maybe have their curiosity peaked to be uh, a, a lover of wisdom mm. without making the course required. Mm. And I don't know, maybe as a Canadian, I tend to kind of like that model. You know, you give them the freedom, you present possibility give them the freedom and, if, and those that are interested can can come and then if they if they don't like it that's okay they can go find their bliss elsewhere maybe there's another course out there that they would like better but if they do like it and i do a lot of commercials i'll say well if you liked this you got to take my dante and aquinas course because we're going to be talking about dante and you know virgil's taking us right through hell and it's going to be great <laughs> you know and i try to encourage them to take more i also say you know better the devil you know so now you know me and so, you know, I'm a friendly face. You can come take a course with me again, you know, and maybe get to know the rest of the department later on kind of a thing. So do you think there's something, ab approach. something about human beings that if you make something compulsory, like I I'm thinking if, if someone, you know, yeah. uh, I'm thinking of like when I was a kid and they made us go camping, it was compulsory <laughs> that you go camping. Right. And I sure. hate it from then on. I've yeah. hated camping. No, yeah. I mean, this is like giving children uh, green vegetables, you know, and then, and you've got a lifetime of 20 and 30 something adults that, that are deathly afraid of Brussels sprouts <laughs> and their parents did this to them. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe that's just not the best strategy. So uh, I would love it if everybody on the planet had access to philosophy, because I think that that would be good for them, individuals, each individual as a human being. And I think that that would be good for each individual, but, but to prescribe it, to require it, uh, no, I don't think so. I would prefer that you put the idea out there and you do it in a winsome way mm -hmm. and then see who responds, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, maybe, uh, maybe the enthusiasm of the instructor and maybe the subject matter itself is going to be what prompts them to be interested in examining right. life and asking good questions and looking for good answers do you think people would be do you think students would be interested if you did a course on like a 
media and philosophy where you take where you take um uh, tv conversational panels and then say oh hey this is a fallacy or you point out uh, well absolutely now i don't teach that course but one of my colleagues who's actually oh, really? my husband pro pro the other professor we there's two of us the other <laughs> professor we my husband he teaches critical thinking and he does that he will pull things from the media um and and from sometimes from political debates uh, now, if I remember correctly, I think he tries not to choose the Canadian ones because it kind of hits a little too close to home. So he chooses people yeah. from other countries. Um, but yeah, just to get the students accustomed to hearing or seeing a fallacy being presented and being able to identify it. Mm. And once they start doing that, they recognize that particularly in a political season when people are running for office, politicians tend to do this. You know, this was Socrates' debate with the, uh, the, the their name escapes me. The sophist, there we go. I forgot the word for a minute. Uh, this, this, is, this is Socrates' debate with the sophists. The sophists were all about presentation, all style and no substance. They were not interested in truth. All they wanted was appearances, and he had constant conflict with them. Similarly, perhaps in cases where people are running for office and they're trying to sell something, they're trying to sell an image, um, and maybe they're a little light on facts. So that's a good way to teach critical yeah. thinking. So, yeah. Is um, there's a all right, Amos, we're going to ask something. Uh, well, I was going to change the topic a bit and uh, hoping that we might get into uh, some more, some different topics in medieval philosophy, which sure. is your some area of expertise. Um, so yeah, I guess you've written quite a bit on on knowing God. Um, like you, you did your dissertation on analogy and Aquinas. Yes. Um, yeah. So I guess um, maybe it relates back to our earlier conversation, but is um, like, do we only know God indirectly? And how, how do we come to know God? Right. So this is a great question. Obviously, I'm coming from a particular perspective. So, uh, you know, I'm just going to tell you what I think the answer is. Sure. Um, there's more than one way to get at that question. One way is to think about it in terms of uh, God as a person. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, if you study world religions, world religions is really fascinating and there's a lot of wisdom to be had mm -hmm. across different traditions and i myself have been blessed by that wisdom but it, um in christianity for example god is considered to be a person and in particular three persons because it's the tr trinitarian religion mm -hmm. so if you think of god as a person then it gets back to perhaps our sympathy empathy conversation if you're dealing with a person then knowing a person is different than knowing a fact. Mm. So we call this the difference between knowledge of a, by acquaintance versus like propositional knowledge. A lot of the philosophical questions about knowing God or language about God are framed in a propositional context because that's what philosophers are interested in. They want to know right. about truth conditions and they want to know about being able to verify things and they want to know about truth claims, etc. Okay, fair enough. And I do work in that. And but um, you know, if you are um, an individual who's interested in religion, or if you are an individual who's in distress and a chaplain comes to visit you, you are not interested in propositional knowledge. Mm -hmm. You are interested in empathy, compassion, forgiveness, redemption, all of these things that human beings love and want. You are, in other words, interested in a person. Mm -hmm. And so 
personal knowledge is different. So here, here's an interesting example. If you look at the history of philosophy and you look at the medieval period, one of the figures that I think is really interesting, but he's not always taught all the time, is Boethius. Mm. So Boethius was a Roman, okay? So he, he, uh, he was actually from a very fancy, if you will, Roman family. And at the time that he's alive, the end of the 5th century and going into the 6th century, Rome has been taken over by the Goths. So the Ostrogoths have sacked Rome. Theodoric is the emperor. And the Goths are not Christians, they're Arians. So the distinction between Christians and Arians is sort of a theological one. It has to do with the status of Jesus. But uh, the bottom line is the Goths did not consider themselves to be Christians. They mm -hmm. thought of themselves as Arians, and Arians were separate from Christianity. Whereas Boethius is a Christian. And there were a bunch of people in the... Theodoric administration that didn't like Boethius, and they decided they wanted to get rid of him. And so the way they got rid of him was they forged letters between Boethius and the Pope, who was in exile in Constantinople, basically making it sound like Boethius was ready to enact a coup, that he was a treason, uh, treasonous, that he was trying to get rid of Theodoric and was going to use the Pope to do it, you know, these kinds of things. And it, they were all fabricated, it was all false, but Theodoric didn't believe Boethius, even though they had been friends. Theodoric mm. turned on him, sent him out of Rome into house arrest, took all his stuff away from him, basically, and uh, ultimately executed him. And at the time when Boethius is getting ready to die, so he knows he's probably not gonna get out of here, he writes this lament called The Consolation of Philosophy. Mm. And in it, uh, it's very much like a platonic dialogue, but instead he's a Christian. So you'd think maybe Jesus comes to talk to him in his fictional writing. Maybe an angel would come to talk to him. Maybe it would be something like that, but no, the person Boethius envisions coming to visit him in this fictional dialogue is a personification of wisdom. It's the Lady Sophia, it's philosophy. Mm -hmm. as a beautiful woman who appears to him and they get into this conversation about human nature and flourishing and justice and virtue and mm -hmm. the universe and fortune, Lady Fortuna, all this stuff. And the first thing she does is she, there's these muses of poetry hanging out and lamenting in his house and she calls them nasty names and she drives them from the house and she says, you can't help him. He was nursed by Aristotle, only I can help him. And in one of the English translations, <laughs> yeah. she calls them a very nasty word, which I will not repeat. But nevertheless, <laughs> the point is, the point is that within this context, one of the things that she talks about is what it is to be a human being and what the human being's relationship to God. Hmm. That's on you know one level. But the other level of what's going on there is that Boethius is comforted by a person. Now, it's a fictional, you could say it's a device, it's a conceit, it's a contrivance, uh, it's an apparition, this personification of wisdom. But there is something about having a person come and visit you when you are in trouble mm -hmm. that provides comfort, that provides consolation. So this is just another way, I think, of illustrating when we're talking about the question about how to know God, I think there's more than one way to get at that answer. You can mm -hmm. go the propositional route and there's much to be said about it. Mm -hmm. And some people find those answers and discussions um, satisfying or not. But in a religious context, and I would say in a Christian context, the better question is how do you encounter the person of God? Hmm. Because ultimately, if God, if God is in fact a person, um, then propositional knowledge is never going to adequately describe him. Hmm. Right. You know, personal knowledge 
it, it, personal knowledge is different. So you two guys know each other, right? And I'm assuming you've met, on, like probably had a beer or something together, a Coca-Cola or something, right? Yeah. Right. I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you guys in person. And so I am, you could give me a list of facts about each other, propositional mm-hmm. knowledge about each other, and I could memorize them and I could know them all, but it's not the same thing as me sitting down and having a Coca-Cola with you guys. Mm. Right. That's, right? That sounds I will like learn a, something new. Yeah. That sounds like an online dating to me. Propositional knowledge. <laughs> well, I will learn. I will learn. <laughs> it can go all kinds of weird directions. I mean, I would learn something. I would learn something new, right? Yeah. I mean, this is mm-hmm. again. This gets back to our empathy, compassion, but also the notion of a subjective experience. Mm. Me having dinner with you guys would be a lot better and a lot yeah. more pleasant and more informative than just a list of propositions. Although the propositions give me all kinds of facts about you, but that's not the same thing to interact with you as a person. So, so I guess on the subject of the knowledge of God, I want to say that personal knowledge, I think, has a role to play here. Is there, is, is there something about human beings that only human beings can know God? Is there something unique about human beings? Um, as opposed to as opposed other to kinds of entities? Like a dolphin or a higher primate. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I thought you were going to ask me something that was going to push me in the direction of the incarnation. Like, I thought you were going to say, what is it about the human experience that is unique? And I was going to say, well, you know, the incarnation is, it's, which is not the same as an avatar, right? Like an Mm. avatar is different Mm. because the God comes to earth as a God, right? Even if he sometimes appears to be a human, but incarnation is is different. I was, I thought you were going to go along. You can can answer that question too, Jennifer. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I'm just thinking out loud here. This is what happens. It's like a philosopher on Coca-Cola. It's like, you know, who knows what could happen? Um, I'm just thinking I'm just thinking about this, though, this notion of what it is to be a human being. Um, I think for a long time, particularly the Christian tradition, didn't pay enough attention to the experience of animals. And that is something, as I've gotten older, that I've been revisiting and I've been contemplating. and. Um, one of the figures that I find really interesting on this is someone like St. Francis of Assisi. Now, I like St. Francis for a lot of reasons. Um, talk about compassion and empathy writ large and a commitment, and, you know, not, not giving away everything because he was from this wealthy family. And then before he began his ministry, just being so generous that he was really down to almost not even a pair of shoes, you know, and, um, but alongside that poverty and that compassion with other human beings in St. Francis, you also have a, um, a tradition of encounters with animals that are very, to many of us, strange. So he has what's called the Sermon to the Birds. And one day he's out with his companions. So there's all these stories about Francis written by his companions, and some of them are really, really nice. And, and in this one story, he stops on the side of the road and he preaches a sermon to the birds and he talks to the birds and he talks about how God made them and how God loved them and how they should always give thanks to God for their, for their beauty and that he feeds them and that they should glorify God. And for many people, it's a little weird to talk to animals or it's a little weird to talk to animals that aren't yours. I yeah. mean, you know, maybe you have a cat, you talk to your cat, but that's your cat. I mean, these were presumably strange birds and he goes and he talks to them, but he preached a sermon to them. And, and, you know, animals come up in the New Testament, they come up all over the place in the Christian tradition. But that particular sermon, I mean, I, I, I have often thought about that, tried to figure out what is it that Francis sees that so many of us have missed? What, mm. what have we missed? And I wonder, 
I wonder if the way to look at it is uh, the connection that we would have with an individual pet by analogy is something like what God has with animals. I, I, I just, I'm just thinking off the top of my head. I'm just speculating. Mm. What if that's the case? I mean, there's okay. a lot of imagery in scripture about God taking care of the animals, but there's also in, a lot of imagery in scripture about God taking care of human beings and being like a parent to them. And there's language, not just about father, but about mother. There's language about mothering, for example, in the Old Testament. So what if it's the case that the, the connection that we have with our pet, you know, your dog or your cat that you love and you care for, and you have some sort of connection with, I mean, they see you and you see them. What if God has that kind of connection mm. with animals? Mm. Now, how far will that go? Honestly, I do not know. Mm. I, I don't know how, how that works. but if we can have a connection with an animal, at least on an individual basis, I don't see why someone like God couldn't have mm. a connection with all animals on a much larger scale. Yeah. I'm thinking and of so, like, yeah, with Abraham and God tells Abraham to save the animals, you know, yeah. you think why, 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 why does he have to save the animals? He could, I mean, it's, it's within mm -hmm. the story. God could just mm -hmm. create more animals. Yeah. There's, there's, there's also, I mean, just off the top of my head, there's uh, one of the, um, uh, when God admonishes um, uh, Jonah, mm -hmm. and he's talking about Nineveh, he said, you've got all of these human beings there that can't tell their left hand from the right, which itself is like, oh my goodness, are, are they dumb? I mean, we don't know, like, do they, do they just, are they, they have trouble with direction? I yeah. mean, you know, I, I don't, how do you, I don't know how to interpret that. But, but then he says, and much cattle. So it's like about the human beings, but then it's also about the animals. But there's also a lot of cattle there. And if you don't sort this out with this, you know, the city's going to be destroyed and you need to go fix it. You know, you need to go and talk to them. Mm -hmm. and, and so the animals are part of that. But the other passage I was thinking of, and um, my professor, Eleanor Stump, has sort of a longer treatment on this. Uh, uh, it's the book of Job. In the book of Job, there are all of these references to animals. Mm -hmm. And some of them talk about God parenting the animal. And uh, I can't remember all of them, but like, I think there's something about an ostrich and the idea is the ostrich doesn't know where the eggs are and can't even figure things out, but God helps the ostrich figure out what to do. So that's like, a, again, a kind of a parental thing, a caregiver thing that God has for the animals. So if you have all of these different instances, you know, maybe you can treat them as something that you could combine into a larger picture. And maybe there is more to God's connection with animals than human beings have been willing to admit because we're speciesist. <laughs> we think, mm. And we think human beings are best and we think we're all that. Is but it? it's not quite like that, is it? We share the planet and there right. are other entities out there that are also alive and that also probably relate to God directly too. Yeah. When it comes to like human nature in, in this conversation, does, do you think there's something, um, is, our, is our sort of consciousness different than that of a dolphin or i mean obviously it's it seems very different from that of an earthworm that's for sure but mm -hmm. from higher um conscious animals you know is there is there something different about because i can't i'm trying to think of you know uh all all, all three of us look different mm -hmm. you know and we're having a conversation that mm -hmm. you know we would think higher primates aren't having conversation about but mm -hmm. is it just is this just a process wherein um, the higher primates now will eventually get to us, you know, in a million years mm -hmm. or in a few million years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
So, I mean, I guess one way would be, is it a difference in, is it a difference in kind mm -hmm. or quality or is it a difference mm -hmm. in quantity? Like, it, it, like is consciousness something where if you had enough of it, you'd be entering this discourse too? Mm -hmm. Or if, is it a different kind of thing? And so therefore certain natural kinds just don't have that access to that consciousness. That is a good question. I teach philosophy of mind and that's one of the questions that, that students want to talk about. Um, you know, about what about certain kinds of animals? And normally the animals that I get as examples are primates like what you're talking about, but also elephants, dolphins, you know, um, the, the quote unquote higher functioning kinds of animals that seem like they're very intelligent and they engage in problem solving and things like that. Because, um, you know, if you're going to look at consciousness or rationality as a benchmark of humanity, um, what other kind, what other animals would have that hmm. or would have something like that? Part of it, I think, is a reflection on what it is what it is to be human. Now, Aristotle wants to say that it, human beings are rational animals. So there are certain properties that we have in common with other kinds of animals, but we have something unique, and that's rationality. And rationality gets cashed out in different ways, but one way you could think about it would be having a moral sense, mm -hmm. a sense of an ought. Sometimes we cash that out as having a conscience. So I say to my students, you know, it's one thing to try to persuade your friend to become a vegan. A vegan. It's another thing to try to persuade a lion to become a vegan. Yeah. You can send your friend to a program or to a 12-step program, to a group. You can't send the lion to the group. It's not going right. to work. He's not going to be receptive to that. So, or if you send your friend to the lion, your friend won't come back. <laughs> right. Well, there's another yeah. kind. Yeah, right. I mean, maybe that, that's the reason why we should persuade the lion to be vegetarian. So if, if you have a lion encounter, uh, you're, you're, you're going to be, you're not off the menu. This is a good thing. Uh, so yeah, you have to, you have to, now in in a lot of in philosophy of mind revolves around this notion of consciousness. And someone like David Chalmers, for example, wants to talk about uh, qualia. He wants to talk about uh, phenomenal features, and he wants to identify them primarily with human beings. But the idea is that there are certain kinds of feels or a first person subjective experience or a perspective that a human being would have. And perhaps it's possible that some animals could have that as well. But it gets us back to that question about how we would know that, how we would bridge that gap and how we would know that unless they told us. Mm -hmm. Because behaviorism can only take you so far. Behaviorism can give you actions, but if you're trying to get into the, the head or the mind or the brain, you're trying to figure out what's going on in there. Without language, it's pretty difficult to figure mm. out or without some kind of an analogy. Mm. So a performative dance by a pet may get you there <laughs> if you could interpret the performative dance. But, you know, how else are you going to get at that? And the question is, I don't know. So maybe it, it's not that the animals don't have that. It's just that they have no way of communicating to us that they have it. Hmm. St. Okay. Francis seems to think that they were listening to his sermon, and apparently the birds were all sitting there very quietly <laughs> while he talked to them. So I do yeah. sometimes wonder. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we could think that maybe bees have a language when they communicate yeah. with each other how to get sure. the flowers. Um, right. But just as a, as a follow-up question to what you've said, uh, something IJ and I have talked about before is, uh, say, hypothetically, uh, we discover a, an intelligent species on another planet that you know has technology mm -hmm. that bears similarities to ours. Uh, there's clearly some sort of language of communication. Uh, on, on an Aristotelian account, like we seem to like know things and metaphysically classify them based based on their accidents. We don't really have a direct knowledge of their essences. 
Uh, I think Thomas Aquinas, in his commentary on the Apostles' Creed, says that we don't even know the essence of a fly, and he sort of point, makes fun of a philosopher who spent 30 years studying bees and still doesn't know their essences. Um, yeah. I don't so, think animals were interesting to Aquinas. He, he really, yeah, that, that no, doesn't surprise I, me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. But um, like, how would we classify them? Would we just say they're humans? Because if human is just a rational animal. Um, yeah. Um, part of the notion of animality, though, has to do with the body. So I guess I'd want to know right. a little bit more. Are, do the aliens have bodies? Are they bodies like ours? Because if they, they aren't. Okay, so by yeah, analogy, so, here. here Go go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, would we say they have bodies that are similar to insect bodies on Earth? Oh, insect uh, bodies. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So maybe, maybe we'd call them like insectoid humans, and we'd, we'd make a distinction between uh, like rational insectoid animals See, I don't and think, rational yeah. mammal, mammal animals. <laughs> yeah. I. The, the, way the, um, the way the classifications get divided is you start with the genus and then you move down and through differentia, then you, you separate them out. Mm -hmm. So if we, want, if we establish that they are animals, that they have animal bodies, and then they also have rationality, then you've got two kinds of rational animals. And then the question is, are they the same species or are they different? Sounds like they're different. Mm -hmm. And so then I want to know what's the significant difference. So is there, usually by Leibniz's understanding of identity, two things are the same if they have all and only the same same properties in common. Mm -hmm. So if you show that they have all and only the same properties in common, then they're the same. But it sounds like they're different. So I'd want to know what's the specific difference between them. So mm -hmm. here's here's an example. I was once at this conference. Uh, I had been invited to go give a talk to students at Baylor. So I'm in Texas. And uh, I can't, they had asked me something about, oh, I was talking about Boethius. Yeah. So we were talking about human nature, rationality, something like that. And I got a question like that about, you know, different uh, differentia. And um, somehow we got on the subject about vampires. And they were trying to figure out, you know, on an Aristotelian understanding, is a vampire a human or not? Because human beings are mortal, rational animals, according to um, uh, Aristotle. What about a vampire? And then we got it hung up on this notion of mortal. And they're like, but they can be destroyed because you mm -hmm. can put them in the sun. So technically, they're not like everlasting or whatever. So they are not really immortal. And uh, this professor from Notre Dame said to me, I got an answer for you blood sucking. That's the differentia. You've got mortal, <laughs> rational animal blood sucking for the vampire and then mortal rational animal non-blood sucking for the human being. I actually thought that was a pretty good try and I felt pretty flattered that the senior professor from the University of Notre Dame took time to weigh in on this difference between vampires and human beings. But it's that kind of thinking where you're trying to figure out what's the specific difference. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, are the aliens immortal? Yeah. If they are, then, then they pop out of the category and they're not human. Mm. Now, Aristotle actually thought that there was an there there were these things. I think they're the spheres of the intelligences that are immortal, rational animals. But they're mm -hmm. like this own kind of thing, and I never teach that because it's it's a bit different, and I I don't sort of ever get into that part of his text. So if that's the case, if the spheres of the intelligences are immortal, rational animals, and our aliens are immortal, rational animals, we still have to find a differentia and a way to pop them into their own uh, subspecies or something like that. What would that's a good question. With human beings, say we have we have humans. Eventually, we're all going to die. But let's just suppose that within the next hundred years, someone Elon Musk's company comes up with a way <laughs> to, you know, extend human life. Have you seen sure. the Have you seen that episode, uh, the show on Netflix called Altered Carbon? I don't even know. No. You, okay, Is it so good? 
it is it is good, but they, I I will warn you that there's a lot of nudity in it because of Whoa! the way that they. I thought this was a show about technology. What kind of show is that? <laughs> but because the way they're well, trying when they to... say carbon, they mean carbon-based life forms. Yes, is that what... exactly. Oh, okay. So all right. So the Play idea is that okay. human beings can download their uh, consciousness onto a stack. And then the, oh. the body itself is a sleeve. And so there's, they kind of throw around the body. as just, you know, it's a sleeve. You just, there's nothing special Okay, that's Manichaeanism. It. And that's what Augustine was opposing. But anyway, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so they get to a point where they down, they're able to download onto a stack. And so you have these super elite, super rich people who have now lived for hundreds of years because they just keep on switching stacks, right? Stacks. Yeah. And so at that point, let's just hypothetically in this situation, with those people who are living for like 500, 600, 700 years, are they now in a different category than, you know, us normal humans who die in like 100 years? Yeah, that's a good question. Aristotle is going to say that they are, they are not human. And the reason why they're not human is because he is not a dualist in the sense that he thinks that human beings are just their mind. That sounds like a Platonistic or Cartesian kind of dualism. So he, he, well, he would deny that that's possible. He's going to say that's metaphysically impossible. But he's also going to deny that they're human because a, a disembodied soul or an intellect uploaded on a stack mm-hmm. is not going to be a human being. So, oh. so no, they're like some other kind of entity that he can't, couldn't even have a because he disagreed with Plato and really thought that when human beings die, the soul goes out of existence. Okay. Soul and the body disintegrate. So he has no he has no concept of the disembodied soul surviving the death of the body. That's a really interesting. I'm going to have to check that yeah, out. Check that so out. I, but but what's interesting to me is that when I teach philosophy of mind, so many of my students are materialists in the sense that they think the mind is the brain. Mm-hmm. So they don't think we have, human beings have a separate uh, soul or spirit. Yet there are legions of science fiction stories, narratives, comic books, movies that are predicated on dualism, where your soul or your mind or your body or your consciousness can pick up and split if it doesn't like the body it has and find another one or be in a computer file or inhabit something Mm. else or or whatever. It's like somehow in the popular culture of science fiction, there's so much more freedom to uh, the possibility of a kind of a dualism than in, you know, the, the life we inhabit. Yeah. What 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 if so so there 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 are researchers I think at one of the Ivy Leagues um, where they're trying to where they're categorizing age as a disease and they're trying to you know find the cure to the disease age. So what if hypothetically they find a cure to this disease we call aging, and people just don't age for like hundreds of years again, except this time you're not downloading your consciousness onto a, into a stack, but you're right. just yeah. in the same body. You're just extra long lasting. Yeah. Is there, it, like would, in, would they like be different? In, like a fiction where you've got super long living people. Mm-hmm. Um, like if the aliens uh, were like not, that. Yeah. I'm still not sure super long living people counts as a differentia. I mean, it just sounds okay. like you're, you're just extra long lasting. Um, now, if you could pop from being mortal to immortal, that's pretty good. So, sort of like may, maybe in the Avengers or something like that. Thor presumably is an immortal, I think, but the rest of them, for the most part, all of these other superheroes can be killed. Mm-hmm. So he's in a different. He's in a special category. He's okay. not a human, whereas many of the rest of them are, or they used to be human, or they're partially human and part machine, or something like that. So, yeah, I, th- I think you still end up in the same category unless you you move into immortality. 
Mm. And then I think you, you on a, now this is presuming Aristotle. Obviously a lot of people have problems with Aristotle. They don't believe in the soul. They don't like the, you know, they don't, they don't like this sort of general notion of uh, animality because they think am, animality is much more um, polylithic. You know, it's much more diffuse and diverse. And so consequently to just categorize everything as an animal is problematic. So, I mean, you could come up with an, uh, another understanding. I mean, you could think about it in terms of personhood or something hmm. that might be different where personhood is Boethius coins this, uh, it's an individual substance of a rational nature. Hmm. And so God could be, be a person without having a body that's yeah. the idea so you could have disembodied intellects you could have angels aliens um but perhaps even animals you know maybe it's the case that you could have an individual substance of a rational nature that happens to be a dolphin or something like that so personhood would be different a different categorization than human being okay so also in, under american law and canadian law corporations count as persons that's right they yeah. can have property they can pay taxes etc yeah they try to um Personify, they tried to make uh, the Ganges River in India because it's so polluted into a person. Yes. And it failed drastically because there's, a, there's actually a video of a, he used to be a minister of environmental something, but in it he's being, the, the, it's a Vice documentary and he's being asked, you know, we need to clean up the Ganges. What do you think the best way is? And he goes, well, the dirtier it is, the cleaner it gets. And he's like, he was just talking about how the more you pollute it, the, the more self cleaning the Ganges river does. And it was the interviewer okay. was just there. He's like, but that doesn't make sense. How are you, how could you be a minister of environmental, whatever it was? It, it is strange though with, um, so with personhood, um, I think there's a, I think there are two professors. I forget what their names were um, uh, from Dalhousie who were, who last year were trying to, or two years ago, were trying to get one of the monkeys that was in the lab. Uh, I think it's a, a chimpanzee personhood so that they can get yeah. it out of the lab. Sure. And, and I've, I've right. always wondered. Declared a person. Yeah, declared a person. I've always wondered if animals, if we could somehow communicate with animals and they could communicate with us, would we all of a sudden have to drastically change the way we understand um, rationality and our relationships with these animals? You know, because we, for example, I, I love chicken. <laughs> I, I eat chicken all the time. I love pork. So would we have to change? Right. Well, uh, probably because part of the reason why we don't treat animals the way we treat human beings is because we think that there's a significant difference between them. Mm -hmm. um, even, even, even vegans or committed vegetarians probably think that there is in fact a significant difference between human beings and animals, but they're just not comfortable uh, eating animals. So, um, but in order to overcome what we perceive to be a significant difference, perhaps you have to have countervailing evidence in the other mm -hmm. direction. So language, a first person perspective, you know, the animal talks to you. Children like, like stories where animals talk, you know, yeah. the, the Narnia stories, the animals talk, you know, the beavers tell the children, you know, about Aslan and the history and stuff like that. And somehow in the um, barrier to belief in children is very low when it comes to that. It just, well, of course, animals talk. I mean, why couldn't they, you know, uh, adults, however, are a bit more skeptical, but maybe, you know, maybe it's the case that, uh, that animals could communicate. They just don't have the language for it. And would so, it be similar to... Or maybe to... it's the case that they don't have, maybe it's the case that they don't have language because they don't have the consciousness. Right. See, we don't know. Would it be similar to if they were, if they were to communicate, able to communicate, would it be similar to how we, how some uh, religious people think about 
uh, when they when they use language in reference to God, they say it's analogous as opposed to uh, what's the other word, Amos? Uh, equivocal. Or equivocal or univocal. Univocal uh, is the one that's similar, right? Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Y- yeah. Uh, part of it depends upon what your metaphysics is, your metaphysics of God. So if you come from a position where you know the difference between God and human beings is just one of amount or quantity rather than quality, univocal language probably isn't a problem. Okay. Uh, that was not Aquinas' position. Um, Maimonides, who I'm also interested in, 12th century Jewish thinker, um, Maimonides' position is that there is such a great difference in kind, so not just quantity, but quality between God and human beings, that any human language will ob- obviously and always fall short of God. And so mm. he, he actually wants to go for a negative approach because he thinks positive language will be equivocal in general. That's his position. But see, Aquinas's position is built on the notion that, that there's an analogy, but it presupposes creation. Now, I know a lot of people want to, you know, they kind of want to, that's the part that tends to be left out in explanations. But if you leave it out, then you don't have the causal grounding for why Aquinas thinks that anal- that there is a, my dog is barking in the background. I think, can you guys hear that? I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's okay. My okay. dog is communicating. Oh, yeah. wow, right? <laughs> anyway. It's anyway, okay. so <laughs> the idea is that uh, because God is the cause and human beings are the effect, and on the basis of some of the work of Aristotle that talks about the resemblance between effect and cause, mm-hmm. on the basis of that causal relationship and the fact that things don't spring out of nothing, that they come from a cause. Aquinas argues that there has to be some sort of similarity between creatures and God. And it's on the basis of that similarity that he grounds the analogy. So if there's no creation or no causation between God and human beings, if you get rid of that piece of the puzzle, then Aquinas' analogy doesn't work. Hmm. So, right? So, I mean, if you're presupposing that there's no connection at all between the divine and, and humanity, then the analogy isn't going to work because it has to be ground on the fact that there's a similarity between the two. And it's a similarity based upon the fact that, that human beings as creatures don't spring into existence uncaused, Okay. Mm-hmm. that their causality can be traced back to a first cause. So Aquinas, is, of, go ahead. Aquinas is, it takes Maimonides step a bit further, whereas Maimonides is just going from um, negative, it's called negative theology. And then Aquinas, right. so Aquinas does Aquinas holds to negative theology as well, or what's the what's he the actual term for it? Yeah. He thinks the via negativa. Aquinas thinks that negations are appropriate with respect to speaking of God. So, for example, you can say that God is not finite. God okay. is not evil, right? I mean, so there's certain things that you can negate of God, but um, when it comes to something like goodness, for example, you want to know where goodness comes from. Moral goodness in human beings, for example, where does moral goodness comes from? Well. You either think it comes from somewhere or that it's always existed. And if you think it comes from somewhere, presumably there's got to be some kind of a causal chain. Now, Aquinas thinks the causal chain terminates in a first cause, which is God. And so consequently, goodness doesn't just come out of nowhere and it hasn't always existed. So if that's the case, then there's some sort of story, some sort of causal story you could tell about where goodness in human beings comes from. Mm. And if the first cause has to have at least as much goodness or reality in it as in the effect. So in other words, moral, any moral goodness in the universe has to come from somewhere. So that cause has to have at least as much as the moral goodness in the universe, if not more, then now all of a sudden you have a grounds for saying 
that there's a connection between the goodness in human beings and the goodness in God. And that's the way it works. So I have a paper on this where I talk about creation as the foundation of analogy. People mm -hmm. throw around the notion of analogy, and you can make analogies all the time, and human beings like to do that, that's for sure. But analogy has to have a ground. There has to be some sort of similarity that you're attributing to the two objects you're comparing, or mm -hmm. the two things you're comparing. And in this case, again, there, you have to affirm some kind of connection between God and creatures, otherwise the analogy can't get off the ground. Hmm. And the similarity is that God is the God would be the creator, and the creation is the created. Basically, I mean, okay. what what Aquinas is saying is is that if you if you take the property of goodness and you resist the notion again that it's always existed in the universe as something like a like a first principle, um, then it has to come from somewhere. And see, uh, Aristotle has this principle in Aristotle reality and the cause as there is in the effect. So it has to be at least equivalent, if not more, because nothing is the cause of itself and because things don't spring into existence out of nothing. So they resist the notion of something coming from nothing. Hmm. So if you put those principles together, then you can reason backward from an effect to a cause. And you can say, well, if there's goodness here, there had to be at least the same amount of goodness, if not more goodness in the cause. And so that's how it would work. Okay. Um, so one more question. Amos, sorry, were sure. you going to ask something? Go for it. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, uh, the idea that creation participates in, like, creation as finite being participates in God's infinite being also mm. plays a huge role in grounding analogy and Aquinas. It, it does, but that's because our being comes from God. Like, it's still yeah. mm. on the basis of that causal, yes, exactly. And um, even making the distinction between finite being and infinite being, right? I mean, you're never going to get a finite being out of an, inf uh, or sorry, you're never going to get an infinite being out of a finite being, not according mm -hmm. to Aristotle and Aquinas, because that works against this principle of you never get something out of nothing, right? Yeah. You can't have more reality in the effect than in the cause, but mm -hmm. you could have it the other way. You could have go from infinity to finitude. Sure. You just can't go from finitude to infinity yeah. on their model. Yeah. Right. What about the, um, there's, there was a, there was a counter that one of my prof professors in graduate school said when, when we were talking about this and she said, well, I know, uh, she said, I, I know lots of, I know lots of students whose parents are dumb and they're extremely, and the students are extremely smart. And that was, that was just a, like a very trivial counterexample to what you, what I, um, um, her, her counterexample to the idea that you can't get more reality in the cause than in the, uh, in the effect than in the cause. Yeah. I mean, normally in the case of biological reproduction, Aquinas wants to categorize that as you know, the causation we're talking about is the human being to a human being. So you've got biological reproduction. And obviously, you're not going to have humans, at least in this particular context, uh, as the offspring of aliens or something right. else, some other species. So I mean, that tends to be the paradigm that he's using there. But see, I actually think there's a complex question behind her assumption. Hmm. Are, her, are the parents indigent <laughs> in the sense of, or no, not indigent, indolent, we're the parents hard workers, <laughs> right? Because I mean, there's a certain amount of people, you have to have a certain amount of talent for some things, but you also have mm -hmm. most of success and intelligence is hard work, isn't it? I mean, presuming you're not talking about somebody who had um, a health problem or um, a brain issue or an injury or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, a lot of uh, intellectual accomplishment is related 
to hard work, but it's also related to opportunity. So yeah, maybe it's the case that you have parents that, you know, have certain kinds of moral failings and you don't have the moral failing in the child, but, um, uh, you have the potential for intelligence, presumably in the parent, but maybe that potential wasn't actualized. So it's not to say that the parent just lacks the property altogether. It's more like they had this potential that was never actualized, mm. right? So insofar as you've got a human being, you're rational, or at least you have a rational component. You have a potential to exercise that rationality. For example, you can learn German. Most human beings, if not all, presumably have some sort of ability to learn some German, but you'd have to exercise that. So just because the child speaks German and the parents don't doesn't mean that parents are dumb in the way that the professor is explaining it or that the parent didn't get their aptitude in some respect from the parent. Right. right? So yeah, that's a good point. That's how I, that's how I answer that. I mean, I mean, yeah, I, I just think it's kind of like an apples to oranges theory. And, and normally, and, and mm -hmm. we're also in some respects talking about, like metaphysical qualities, like moral goodness versus say an acquired ability, like speaking German or doing mm. math, right? I mean, maybe you can't do math on your own because you got to go to school, but maybe the parents, unfortunately, you know, through poverty did not have the opportunity to go to school. Mm. You know, mm. I don't know. I would, you're a professor, you're going around calling people dumb. Mm, I think they're going to smack you for your job. I'm, that would not be my first choice, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, maybe there are people who have responsibility for their ignorance. Sometimes I'm on the internet and I think, you have responsibility for your ignorant and that sign is ignorant and you're responsible for it. And you need to take that sign down. But, uh, you, you know, for the most part, you know, you don't want to just categorize people as dumb. I think that's yeah. mean. So. Um, Amos, do you have any last questions? Um, no, I, I don't think I do. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Mm -hmm. This was a lot of fun. And yeah. I think, uh, you know, one of the things that I think we demonstrated is that philosophy is about conversation mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. how much fun it is to have conversations with other like-minded individuals and, uh, you know, just throw out ideas yeah. and throw out questions and see where it goes. Oh, for That's sure. part of the fun. Yeah. Um, do you have social media that people can find you or? I don't because no? I'm oh old. <laughs> I'm old and I'm medieval. Uh, if people want to find me, they can find me through the Department of Philosophy at the University of New Brunswick. I have email. Now that might be too old school uh, for your listeners, but if they can, you know, slow it down a bit uh, to medieval level and they want to drop me a line, of course, I'm, I'm happy to hear from people. But yeah, no, I'm, and, and in fact, uh, not only am I just online, I can't even take, uh, you know, phone calls or anything because we're locked out of our offices because of COVID. We're all working from oh, home. Right. It's all remote at the University of New Brunswick. Some courses will be on campus in the fall, but my department philosophy will be all online in the fall. So, mm -hmm. you know, I could do a brief commercial and say, if you're interested in philosophy and you want to take a course with me, I'm online in the fall. So if you want to <laughs> register for an online course at the you University of New anywhere. Brunswick, you know, we are a welcoming environment and it would be great to have you in my online online course but yeah. uh yeah i'm not even in my office these days but they can shoot me an email okay okay and <laughs> you 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 haven't considered getting twitter at all i thought about it maybe for a second but a friend That's, of mine just a, second. <laughs> a friend of mine in another department started getting into all kinds of of, of arguments with people and that's just not what I want for my life you know what I mean like I I enjoy interacting with people I really do and I, um, insofar as I can, I want to um, amplify 
goodness and mercy and justice and loving your neighbor. These are core values to me and things that I think the world needs. But um, I, I sort of try to do that in my own little uh, Atlantic uh, Canadian environment. Uh, I'm not ready to go worldwide. <laughs> so maybe someday, but yeah, no, I'm just, and then I write my articles. I mean, you know, I, that's sort of my uh, other things, you know, I write these yeah. philosophy papers. Thank you so much. I'm Eddie. also the pre well, just one more thing. I yeah, am, yeah, cool, I, am the, I am the president of the Canadian Society of Christian Philosophers, and every year we oh, put on a conference okay. that's part that's, of the that's part of Congress, which puts together yeah, yeah. all the learned societies. And so we are actually affiliated with the Canadian Philosophical Association, yep. and we were supposed to have a conference at Western this year, but unfortunately, because of the pandemic, it was canceled. But next year, we will be at the University of Alberta. And at the moment, um, our speaker is, is Graham Hunter from the University of Ottawa, uh, right. who's going to be giving a talk on modern philosophy. Okay. And so we're very excited about that. And um, certainly people who are interested can register for it, but you can also um, email the organization or email me. And um, we will put out a call for papers in the fall. So if people are interested in presenting a, uh, a paper at the annual conference for the Canadian Society of Christian Philosophers, we would certainly welcome that. So just we'll, a short commercial there. Yeah, we'll put that in the link as well. Thank so you. That would be it. awesome. Yeah. I, I would um, appreciate that. We're a small group, but you know, we're all obviously happy to welcome new members. Is there like a, is there, um, is there a qualification for who can be members? No, it's just anyone who either self identifies as a Christian or is interested in Christian philosophy and wants to, to join. Okay. We've sort of left it, you know, really open and, and, you know, it's a, it's a welcoming environment. Well, thank you so much again. Thanks. Yeah, good. Thanks. Super. Have a great day, gentlemen. Thanks again for inviting me. Yeah. yeah.